1: from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt
2: water. Yama and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, August 14, well, January 26, a polarizing date no more for the city of Greater Bendigo, as Bendigo has made changes to move their Twilight Day citizenship ceremony to January 25. And instead, mark January 26 with more inclusive events, respectful of First Nations peoples. In the program today, we'll have a conversation with uh, Councillor Andrea Metcalf. Bendigo, to learn more about uh, the latest developments in her city. On NITV Radio today, we'll also have a conversation with Talia Lido, host of Lara Pinta, a compelling six-part documentary series that will premiere on NITV later this week. In Larapinta, Talia takes viewers on an intimate and engaging journey, meeting with people who call Larapinta home, including scientists, rangers, traditional owners, historians, archaeologists, and more. Also in your program today, we have a conversation with Professor Stephen Van Nguyen, director of the recently launched cutting based Training Center for Healing Country. As you'll hear, the new center seeks to restore a country by combining indigenous knowledge and traditional approaches with Western science. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV radio, broadcasting from NAM on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day
0: 1972
3: saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside. The
0: native
3: title legislation must be amended.
0: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry.
2: In this bulletin, the deputy opposition leader accuses the prime minister of using the indigenous voice to parliament referendum for political gain. A legal settlement over the murder of an Iranian asylum seeker on Manus Island. And Antonio Albanese steps up calls for a public holiday if the Matildas win the World Cup. Deputy Leader Susan Lee has accused Prime Minister Antony Albanese of using the Indigenous voice to parliament referendum for his own political gain. It comes after comments made by the Prime Minister who called the coalition's commitment towards constitutional recognition of Indigenous people as disingenuous. Ms. Lee says Mr. Albanese needs to be open with the Australian public regarding the upcoming referendum.
3: He's not in this for. Indigenous Australians and closing the gap. He's in this for the political advantage that it brings him. So those sort of threats, are, I don't think Australians are going to buy them at all. I think they want decency, they want leadership, they want honesty, and they want details and explanation from their Prime Minister. And to simply sort of say, well, if you don't vote for this, it's never going to happen, um, that's not making your case properly.
2: Nationals leader David Littleproud has rejected calls for legislating an indigenous voice, despite it being at odds with the model for the body proposed by coalition colleagues. While the Liberal Party has come out against the voice, voice referendum slated to be held later this year, the opposition has urged it. Be- it be legislated rather than have the body enshrined in the Constitution. The Liberals have also favoured a model that would support regional and local voices to Parliament. Mr Littleproud said he was unlikely to back the proposal put forward by the Senior Coalition Party, putting in doubt a legislated voice altogether if the opposition wins the next election. The leader of Western Australia's Liberal Party, Libby Metam, says she will vote no to the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum after previously saying she would support the Yes campaign. Libby Metam has told the ABC she still supports Indigenous recognition in the Constitution and any efforts to overcome Indigenous disadvantage, but says more detail is needed about what's planned.
0: What I was hopeful of, Uh, And what many Australians and Western Australians are hopeful of uh, is more detail on how uh, this voice, the the voice that has been proposed, will lead to some real practical outcomes.
2: The federal government says it will spend $44 million over the next eight years to support Indigenous families who are navigating the child protection system. Indigenous children are almost 12 times more likely to be placed in out-of-home care. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishwos says the government has committed the funds to try to reduce the number of Indigenous children in out-of-home care by 45% by 2031. The parents of an Iranian Muslim seeker who was murdered during riots on Manus Island in 2014 has reached a confidential settlement with the federal government and the security firm G4S. Reza Barati was beaten to death by guards and other contractors during a riot at the Australian-run offshore detention centre in February 2014. The family sued in the Victorian Supreme Court two years ago. The confidential settlement does not include any admission of responsibility by the Australian government. The United States Ambassador to Australia, Caroline Kennedy, says there could be a resolution to the ongoing detention of Julian Assange, who is fighting against extradition to the United States. The WikiLeaks founder has spent years in the British courts trying to avoid being sent to the U.S. where he faces charges of espionage and for leaking classified documents. Ambassador Kennedy met with Assange supporters in June and has told the Sydney Morning Herald there could be a potential plea deal that would allow Assange to return to Australia. New figures show thousands of New Zealanders have applied to become Australian citizens weeks after a new pathway to citizenship was opened. More than 15,000 New Zealanders have started the process of Australian citizenship since changes came into effect at the start of July. Under the changes, New Zealanders who have been living in Australia for at least four years on a special category visa can apply for citizenship. New data reveals people living in in flood-prone areas face face up to 50% increase in their insurance premiums. Analysis from the Actuaries Institute has found home insurance premiums increased by 28% in the 12 months to March. The higher cost of building materials because of supply chain shortages is one reason why the premiums are now more expensive. Sharanjit Padam from the Actuaries Institute has told the ABC home insurance is now unaffordable for more than a million Australian households.
0: Last year we thought it was about one in ten households, now it's uh, one in eight, nearly one in eight households, so that's 1.24 million households across Australia for whom home insurance costs are probably more than one month of their income and therefore likely to be
1: well out of their reach.
2: A public holiday in honour of Australia's World Cup success is looking more and more likely as the Prime Minister calls for a national celebration. The Matildas booked Australia a spot in the semi-finals after a nail-biting penalty shootout with France setting up a showdown with England on Wednesday. Should the hosts advance to the final and win, Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has flagged the possibility of the country's workers enjoying a day off in recognition of the victory. He brushed off concerns about the impact a snap public a public holiday could have, particularly on small business and hospital bookings. A new report reveals essential workers are having to pay as much as 70% of their income on rent. The report finds early childhood educators, nurses and aged care workers in full-time work can only afford as little as 1 in 100 rentals. Anglicare Australia Executive Director Casey Chambers says the situation is particularly severe, severe for these essential workers.
0: These are your ordinary average Australians. You know, these, these are people on those, those good jobs that we need doing and if they can't afford to be in the private rental market, then there's something going very wrong with our housing. What it means is that we're seeing people who are living very unaffordably. They're spending, you know, 50, 60, sometimes even 70% of their income, putting a roof over their head. They are traveling way too far um, for, for their, their shift.
2: Authorities in Hawaii are investigating whether more could more could have been done to warn residents of Maui in the hours before devastating wildfires broke out. The fires destroyed virtually all of the township of uh, Lahaina, and at least 93 people were confirmed dead with hundreds missing. This resident says people were caught unawares.
0: There was no warning. I was paying attention on my phone to the news, okay? Oh, it's so many hundreds of miles south. We're going to have some strong winds. It's going to play havoc with our trade winds. Nothing to worry about.
2: Hawaii Governor Josh Green is promising a thorough investigation. Over time, we'll be able to figure out if we could have better protected people. That's why we're reviewing everything. We want to do that in a very open and transparent way. Uh, but it, it was complicated by the fact that there were multiple fires uh, across this beautiful island at the same time. And now to sports Soccero's legend, Tim Kyle, believes Australia are poised to lift the Women's World Cup after their nail-biting penalty shootout victory over France propelled them one step closer to silverware. The Matilda's drama chart win has Tony Gustafsson's side one game away from the final with Wednesday's semi against England all that stands in their path. Kael, who was in Brisbane to watch that monumental Matilda's win, says the dream of an Australian women's World Cup victory could soon become a reality.
0: They deserve it. I think it's a time to celebrate women's uh, sport and beating France. I think now they can go on to win it. So I'm very proud and I'm proud that uh, you know young boys and girls can be inspired and now it's about taking that momentum and you know enjoying this because it's a very special occasion.
2: And in tennis Italy's Janik Cena has defeated Alex de Mino in straight sets in the final of the Canadian Open. Cena overpowered the Australian six four six two. Now having a look at the weather around the country. Broome, particularly partly cloudy, twenty-eight. Perth, possible shower, twenty. Adelaide, mostly sunny, sixteen. Melbourne, partly cloudy, thirteen. Hobart, similar conditions, twelve degrees. Albury Wodonga, partly cloudy, fourteen. Canberra, showers, eleven. Wollongong, rain, fifteen degrees. Sydney, showers, seventeen. Newcastle, similar forecast and twenty degrees. Brisbane, sunny, twenty-nine. Townsville, sunny, twenty-six. Kent sunny as well, on a top of twenty-seven. Alice Springs, similar conditions 31, Darwin, sunny 33, and the Torres Strait Islands, a partly cloudy day ahead and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News.
0: NITV Radio. Monday,
2: Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. And that was uh, Attack Attack uh, by uh, the great Kev Comedy. And uh, the song Attack Attack is lifted from the album uh, Pila's So Sad, which is uh, Kev Comedy's uh, debut album. And when this album was released, actually Rolling Stone magazine dubbed it arguably the best protest album ever made in Australia. It was also proclaimed that Kev Kamwadi is actually Australia's black Bob Dylan. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio, coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next in the program, conversation with Talia Lido, host of Lara Pinta, a compelling six-part documentary series that will premiere on NITV later this week. In this series, Talia takes viewers on an intimate and engaging journey meeting with people who call the river home as well as scientists, arrangers, traditional owners, historians, archaeologists and more. Also in the program today we have a conversation with Professor Stephen Van Leeuwen, Director of the recently launched Training Centre for Healing Country. As you'll hear the centre seeks to restore a country by combining indigenous knowledge and traditional approaches with western science. But first, January twenty-six, a polarising date no more for the city of Greater Bendigo, as Bendigo seeks to mark the day in more inclusive ways, respectful of First Nations peoples.
0: NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
2: In its July 2023 meeting, the City of Bendigo moved its Australia Day Citizenship Ceremony to January 25 and instead decided to dedicate January 26 on working with local First Nations communities for more inclusive events. And I'm happy to say I'm joined by uh, Councillor Andrea Metcalf, Mayor of Bendigo, to explore these historic developments. Welcome to NITV Radio, Councillor Metcalf.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation to be here.
2: Now, this is a historic move. What prompted Benigo Council to make uh, this decision?
0: So we've been in conversations with our um, local Indigenous groups over the last few years about what January 26 means for them and what they would like to see um, us as a city take on a leadership role in this space. It's been an ongoing conversation. We've actually... Developed a statement of intent, which has gone back out to the community. So we know that um, our, the are uh, supported our statement of intent. We know that the Bendigo District Aboriginal uh, Cooperative also supported the statement of intent, and we know that our Tungarung Land Group's people also supported they didn't support our statement so much as they put out their own statement but it mirrored very much what we were saying as well so um, we knew that we had that support. Uh, This all started with uh, a petition that came to council in 2019 saying you know, could we consider what we did on January the 26th because it was a day that wasn't inclusive of all of the people in our city. It's been a conversation that's been happening like originally started in 2019 and in 2023 we've come to a conclusion on it in terms of um, moving the Australian Day Citizenship Ceremony when we were able to do that away from January the 26th and then also developing a statement of intent that was we did it um, in relation with our Indigenous groups as well.
2: Uh, That was going to be my next question because it said that uh, this is a move that aligns with uh, your council's reconciliation action plan. What was the reaction of uh, traditional owners uh, when this decision uh, finally was adopted?
0: Uh, Look, they were really appreciative. So I will say like in the June council meeting, uh, we took a position on the voice to say that we supported the voice as a council and we would make sure that we provided information to our community on both the yes case and the no case. And we had members of our local groups there, our local Indigenous groups and also members of the community there who were fully supportive of us taking a yes position. So that happened in um, June 23 at our, our council meeting And so we took that position. So we had probably our biggest gallery there for a little while, but it was probably only about 30 people. But we had overwhelming support from those that were there um, as well. So this time, when we went to the July council meeting, we had people that were also supportive of council taking a position um, of moving our Australia Day citizenship ceremony, but also around um, endorsing the statement of intent. And Rodney Carter, who is the CEO of the Judge Jar Corporation, actually was there in the gallery that night and he was very pleased with the outcome. Um, you know, this has been well supported by our First Nations people.
2: I know conversations around uh, changing events of uh, celebrating uh, January 26, marking January 26. These conversations have been around for decades and uh, a few years back when actually councils were taking moves, not as a... radical as the one you've just taken there were threats from the federal government and uh, the councils had to walk back their decisions does this move uh, that uh, this decision you've taken does it align with the federal government's australia day citizenship ceremonies court
0: there was a time when the federal government said if you didn't do citizenship ceremonies on the january the 26th you couldn't do them at all throughout the year and we didn't want to miss out on the citizenship ceremonies because it's, they're such a joyous occasion in our community. It's one of the happiest events that we go to as councillors. So we, we support, decided we would stay with the January 26th so that we could continue the citizenship ceremony. It was only December last year that the federal government said we could change... The Australia Day citizenship ceremony and it could be three days either side of January the 26th so we actually took the opportunity then to go we couldn't change it this year it was too close to the date but we thought going forward we would make a change to move it to the day before now in saying that there's um, there's some practicalities around that as well because there are a number of events that are held in the community on that day this year our Badak held a ceremony at the start of the day, that's the Bendigo District Aboriginal Cooperation, and it was an invitation only event um, because they didn't know how it was going to be and how well it would be supported. But going forward, they will most likely do something on that day and council will continue to work with them on how they, uh, all of our traditional owners, on how they might want to hold an event on that day. So that is really good. With that, uh, we also have all the community events. Now, nothing's been taken away from the community here. In fact, there's an additional event on the day, and that is the event that will be run by our traditional owners and First Nations community.
2: Usually on January 26, there are barbecues, uh, clubs and volunteers organise events, and uh, the conversations that have been going around is actually if any changes to January 26 festivities, these uh, events that are uh, grassroots events would be affected.
0: Yeah, we decided that we weren't going to change any of the events. The only event that we do on January the 26th is the citizenship ceremony and we thought we would move our ceremony but we're not saying to our community groups that you can't hold an event on that day. Um, And and councillors will attend uh, various events that happen in the community on that day as well. We're not changing anything for the community. As I said, there's a, a new event being added to our calendar.
2: It appears it will be a very inclusive uh, way of approaching this. Uh, previously very divisive, but now you've opened the opportunity to actually see it in a different, uh, through a different lens.
0: Yeah, uh, we think that that um, it 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 becomes much more inclusive. Part of our um, the statement of intent is also um, we're going to advocate for a review of the date that brings Australian people together to celebrate Australia Day. And we will do that to the federal government. We, it, it's, is there a better day that works, that's not a divisive day in our community? And if so, would they consider that? They may not do it in this term. What we hope is that if there is to be any sort of a change of date, that it actually aligns up with the intent of the Uluru Statement of the Heart.
2: Wow, that's a really, really a very powerful way of uh, uh, adding to this conversation in a very, very positive way.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
2: It is. Now, before I let you go and I, I caught you on short notice, uh, any final thoughts or any message you'd like to send out there to the community?
0: Of The decisions that we've made just recently um, around The Voice and our support for it and around moving our citizenship ceremony and um, adding an event to January the 26th and the work we've done with the Traditional Owners Um, The support that we've received has been overwhelmingly positive from our community.
2: Councillor Andrea Metcalfe, Mayor of uh, Bendigo City, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. My pleasure.
0: NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
2: Now, if you missed uh, this conversation, the beginning of this conversation with uh, the council, the Mayor of Bendigo, well, it's already published on our website, sbs.com.au slash radio. Time for another tracker uh, before our next uh, story. yana by uh, the Teeters.
0: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
2: I'm joined by larger woman Talia Lido, a content creator and filmmaker who is also the host of a compelling new NITV documentary series, Lara Pinta. The six-part series explores the stories and people that surround one of the oldest rivers in the world and takes the audiences on an intimate and engaging journey meeting with people who call the river home, as well as scientists, rangers, traditional owners, historians, archaeologists, and more. Welcome to NITV Radio, Talia. Hi, thank you for
1: having me. I'm really happy to be here.
2: Now, this is a massive production that's uh, premiering in a few days' time. I just outlined uh, succinctly what it entails. Now, can you present Pinta to our listeners, considering especially that this series explores a river which you have a strong personal connection to?
1: Oh, absolutely. So Larapinta, which is the traditional name, it means salty creek or salty river. Larapinta follows me back home to Central Australia to talk to communities and people and scientists, traditional owners along the river. To talk about climate change and the effects that it's having on the river, but also on the communities along that river and how that wider affects wider Australia. I guess my personal connection to this river is it goes so deep. You know, my, my Aboriginal connections have always been in central Australia and I grew up listening to my great grandmother and grandparents talk about how they use Luripinta as a natural highway. And not only as a natural highway, as a food source, as a life source, as a ceremonial source. So this river also goes from Central Australia down into South Australia. And it goes through many different communities, um, many different tributaries and connects so many different Aboriginal people. So my personal connections are very deep within, within this area.
2: Now, on your journey making uh, this uh, documentary, you got to meet and talk to some extraordinary people, most importantly elders on your country. Now, what was your experience working with elders and uh, community members?
1: This experience and this opportunity was breathtaking. You know, I met with wonderful people and learned about how science and Indigenous knowledge connects. And working with elders and community members is my favorite thing to do in the world because you're talking about things that are deeply personal and sometimes facing harsh realities, but there's also a lot of humour within these sentences. You know, Aboriginal people have gone through so much and are going through so much. And I guess how we get through that is is with humour and it's not that we find things funny, it's that it's serious, but that's just how we get through things. So working with Elders and community members was... It was deeply personal and it was beautiful and... You know what ceases to amaze me is that after all this time and all this hurt within this country, we are still willing to share our knowledge and our stories with people to make this a better place for our future generations. And, you know, in the documentary you see my great-grandmother talk about something that happened to her when she was young and and I'm actually hearing this for the first time and I, I had to step away from the camera, yet my grandmother was sitting there about it and it's not because she finds it funny it's because that's how she deals with things and I think that just sitting there and realizing the intergenerational strength that our people have was was really beautiful and I saw that across all people that I spoke to from the start of the river to the end.
2: And what was the most exciting thing that uh, happened uh, while shooting and producing Lara Pinta?
1: Honestly I could sit here and talk about every single exciting thing that happened because every day was something new. But I think what was really exciting was exploring new country because to me, you know, I've been on my homeland and been around those areas, but going into South Australia was really beautiful. Um, We met these two boys at the end who were hysterical. Um, these two young Aboriginal boys, and really getting to meet them and explore their country with them was really beautiful. Uh, but there were so many exciting experiences. I remember one day when we're doing fish surveys, um, the fish kept jumping out of. I'm I'm not a fisher. I do not fish. I grew up in Darwin as well, so I have a lot of you know PTSD with that. But um, having the fish jump into the box and then they jump out was hilarious. So. Um, you actually see that on screen, but yes, I think there were many exciting moments.
2: And what was your reaction when the fish jumped out of the water? Did you scream and jump? And uh...
1: <laughs> I did. I I, I went ah! Oh, I I threw in some swear words accidentally, so they did cut those parts out. But um, I felt a bit shamed of too. I was like, people are going to be watching this and thinking this woman don't even fish. Um, so yeah, I uh, it was yeah it was very exciting every day was exciting yeah i oh i could go through every single experience that i had um but yeah
2: now making this film must have deepened your connection to country my view the series is also described by screen australia as a compelling natural history series that takes a look at one of the oldest rivers in the world through a scientific environmental and cultural lens and its significance, especially how it's evolved over time from the megafauna to the present day. Can you tell us how this is reflected uh, in uh, Lara Pinta?
1: Absolutely. So during La Pinta we go very deep into Indigenous knowledge, but we also go very deep into scientific knowledge. And we really look at how both uh, interconnect, essentially. And actually, we talked to Adam Yates, who is a paleontologist, about the megafauna and, you know, the interesting thing about Lurapinta Pinta is that dinosaurs were roaming in this river, around this river, and then it was before there was a rainforest at one stage in Central Australia. It was megafauna. So there's so many different aspects to this river and so many different walks of life that have lived on this river and used it as, used it as a life source. And, you know, we hear that from traditional owners in the series as well, and there's so many different, Western scientists that we speak to and so many different traditional people that we speak to and just seeing how they both interconnect is is really interesting, but it's also a no-brainer for people that live in Central Australia and the wider population of First Nations people, you know. Our knowledge is so deeply embedded within this country and we've known this for thousands of years. We know the facts. We know the stories. We know what's lived here. That's all within our knowledge. So just seeing how science backs that up on this, I think it'll make a really positive effect for the wider public as well.
2: And how was it working with the team and the crew that uh, worked with you on uh, uh, producing this new series, uh, Lara Pinta?
1: It was lovely. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, the director, Gary Hamaguchi, is from Broom, and Gary was is an award-winning director and an inspiration to me. He's what essentially inspired me to want to create films uh, after this documentary. So really being with him and learning from him along this journey was beautiful. And We had a great DOP, we had a great soundie, we had a great crew that was really relaxed, they were friendly, they were open, um, and it was a really great experience. And I just want to do a shout out to Gary Hamaguchi because this wouldn't have been possible without him and, Yeah.
2: And any challenges along the way, something that might have gone wrong, as in um, many similar projects that uh, may have derailed the journey or even altered the whole story altogether?
1: Absolutely. It was a a very different story from when we started. But with documentary, you have to expect that because, you know, the research was done a couple of years before we had come back to Central Australia and we'd gotten there and realised, hang on, the stories change. At its core, it's still the same. So really going out there and being open to what community members actually wanted to talk about. And scientists, what they were saying was relative, but really seeing what these senior people were wanting to say about Laura Pinter and um, seeing where the documentary went. So that was a bit of a challenge going into it thinking, okay, this is what it's going to be. And it turns out to be something completely different. But it turned out to be something really exciting, it's fun, it's new. I'm pretty sure it's the first documentary on the oldest river in the world, um, which is very, very exciting. It was, it was very challenging, but I think it's all worked out the way it's meant to be.
2: And uh, before I let you go, any further reflections you may want to share with us? Uh, maybe a message to the audience and uh, the wider public?
1: I think when... You know, a message to the wider public is that when watching this documentary, I hope people come in with an open mind and I hope they leave all their preconceived ideas at the door because you're going to be listening to a lot of TOs that are sharing their stories after many years of sharing them. You're going to be listening to people's life stories. And I just want people to really listen with an open heart and an open mind and hear what we have to say, because at the end of the day, this is our life. Lara Pinta is our life source and Central Australia is our life. So, yeah, just really listening with an open mind and an open heart, I think.
2: Talia, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio and present to us the compelling new series you host, Lara Pinta.
1: Thank you so much. It was lovely to be here. Visit sbs.com.au/slash NITV Radio.
2: I'm joined by Professor Stephen Van Leeuwen from uh, Curtin University's School of Molecular Science and uh, Life Sciences, a noted botanical ecologist, Australia's first Indigenous Chair of Biodiversity and Environmental Science, and now Director of the just-launched Australian Research Council Training Centre for Healing Country. Professor Van Leeuwen, welcome to NITV Radio, and uh, can you unpack for us how the newly launched uh, center will restore country. And he said in a way that actually puts First Nations communities uh, at the center of uh, building uh, resilient systems.
3: So the center is focused all about indigenous people and um, putting First Nations back into the restoration economy. And so we will be undertaking research and training where our number one client is the needs of First Nations research users, we will be co-designing projects, asking First Nations communities what do they need, what information, what knowledge gaps are there for the restoration of country? Do they need assistance with business plans so they can be involved in the restoration of company, uh, country? Sorry, do they? want to know about what benefits working in the restoration of country can deliver to community in terms of well-being so we'll be co-designing projects with people indigenous people first nations people along those lines the other big part of the center is about training so we want to deliver training products that upskill community in the restoration economy and yes a lot of that is focused on students Indigenous students at university, but we're also breaking the mould a little bit and we'll be you know engaging with school children, running school camps on restoration, and we'll also be working a lot with um, Indigenous land management practitioners who are already working in the restoration economy, such as ranger programs and so forth, providing them with opportunities to get training or new training modules or accreditation for the training they're already uh, receiving and doing on
2: country, and being a university, I gather one of the very very uh, big components is uh, the training. As you said, there is a specific need for uh, postgraduates and uh, pathways all the way to PhDs.
3: Ideally, you know, we have six postdocs and about sixteen PhDs in this program. Ideally, you know all of them, and my aspirations would be all of them will be Indigenous, but reality is there's not enough Indigenous students in the university, university doing environmental science or biology or restoration that will come, you know, we'll be able to fill all those positions with Indigenous. Perhaps next time around, in five years' time, there will be a few more, but, you know, we, we intend to assist people in a range of programs who, you know, yes, I can do this, I can, you know, and here's a pathway into a university through micro-credentials, and in five years' time they've, you know, completed an undergrad degree with with wraparound support, and they're interested in going on to postgraduate studies, whether that be a master's, a PhD, and, you know, ultimately a postdoctoral position.
2: It's said that uh, you're already working with 19 uh, different community organisations. Can you name one or two for us?
3: There's 19 industry partners in Keeling Country, which is uh taken a while to get all sorted, but we've got there. And that ranges from you know, big corporates like BHP down to small organisations and um, business, businesses across the spectrum. People like Greening Australia, people like Gondwana Link, um, people like Hive and Wellness, a whole series of organisations, 19 of them. Environmental consultancies have come on board. And besides um, industry partners, we also have a number of what we're calling endorsing indigenous organisations, such as Noongar Land Enterprises and um, the Esperance Noongars, who are on board as supporting the work we want to do. We haven't asked them for money or any um, in kind input like that, but we will be working with them, asking them, you know, what do you need? what information do you need, what knowledge gaps are there that you need to, what would like to see addressed so you can participate more in the restoration economy And
2: you have a, a, a country cultural advisory council and board uh, who will uh, yep. lead uh, the, the, and design the research programs.
3: Well I, I'm an indigenous man myself, I'm a Noongar man uh, Wadandi from the Bustleton area so I'm the director and below myself we've got the, it, we've got a board which is all indigenous um, people from the Kimberley people from the southwest WA across you know and a, a good gender mix we also have a um, elders advisory board who provide us the, the board with the cultural governance and cultural proficiency we need and they're obviously all indigenous and then we've got three key research themes those are restoration, socio-economic, and eco-health, and each of those themes is led by a um, a really good academic, high high high-performing academic person, and they're co-partnered with an indigenous person. In in one of the themes, the eco-health theme, the indigenous person is the academic, and we're partnering them up with another you know, academic as well. Each of the themes has. An indigenous voice helping guide the research activities and the ultimately the PhD postdoc students uh, scholars that will be working in those themes.
2: this project is really can be called the um, best practice a project that blends really perfectly country uh, healthy culture and uh, healthy communities now will it be restricted to Western Australia and Noongar country or it can be replicated in other places?
3: When we put the application in, we're in the height of COVID. Yes, the, the, the project is very much focused on southwest of WA. You know, some of our partners are based in the Kimberley and in the Pilbara and in the Goldfields. But again, West Australian focus. We realised that and um, discussed that with the Australian Research Council, who are our primary funder, but the outputs and application of what we do is applicable and will be applicable across the nation. And you know, you're know you right, we're pushing leading practice in that decisions about country and how country is managed and how country in particular is restored need to be made with the traditional owners at the table. And we need to be trying to address the aspirations that traditional owners, traditional custodians have for their country.
2: And will this centre be a permanent fixture or it's got a limited uh, uh, funding and scope and time?
3: The, the current program is a five-year funded program. We are very confident at the end of that five years we will probably go again. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we are bringing in and bringing on other partners to help extend the program and extend the coverage that we are working on and number of projects and you know as i mentioned you know we have a environmental consultancy that has come on board you know they've come on board and they're they're funding another, an additional postdoc in our program which is fantastic so you know that they're, they're committed to helping aboriginal people in this case in the restoration of their country and they're particularly interested in you know carbon stocks in the soil and how restoration improves those um, carbon stocks for a carbon market, for example.
2: Now, before I let you go, any closing words or maybe uh, something we may not have covered you'd like to bring to the attention of our listeners?
3: Yeah, the opportunities that are currently out there with carbon markets and nature repair markets coming, the opportunities for First Nations to be in the driving seat of what they want done with their country. Um, And this applies not only after, after mining, but it applies to you know the restoration that we need to do because of the climate challenge we currently face and making sure First Nations are driving that and at the front of that.
2: Now, Professor Stephen Van Nguyen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today.
3: My pleasure.
0: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
2: And that's all from us from NITV Radio this Monday afternoon. NITV Radio will be back on Wednesday with uh, Loana Grant. I'm Betron Tungandame thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yaloo.